time to screw the norms. To fit in, we often hide what's on our minds, who we really are, or who we want to be, or even what we want to do. But now you're having the right conversations. Here, we'll talk about sex, relationships, and mental health, and how they interact with each other and so many other aspects of life. Shame can't survive when we're honest and curious with each other and ourselves. It's time for your mind to scream less and for you to screw more. I'm Rachel Wright, a non-monogamous queer psychotherapist and your host. Hello, friends. I am so excited to have you today. I'm a little hoarse, so (laughs) pardon my uh, throat. I don't actually know what's going on. But welcome. I'm so excited to introduce you to someone who has made a giant difference in my life. And I know that I am not alone in the world when I say this. Um, I am just beyond honored and thrilled to have Diana Adams on the podcast today. And among other things, today's conversation is about what LGBTQ and polyamorous people should know about family law. Um, And if you are sitting here like, oh, I'm not in the LGBTQ community and I'm not polyamorous, I don't know how you got here, but that's great. We love you and we want you to be here too. And I want to encourage you to still listen to this because you probably know someone in your life that is a part of one of these communities or these identities. Um, I know that it means a lot to me when I have family or friends say, hey, I read this thing and it's about you and your life. (laughs) So I want to encourage you to just stick around, even if even if you don't identify in one of those communities. So without any further ado, Diana, welcome to The Right Conversations. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, beyond. So before we go any further into anything, will you introduce yourself, what you do in the world, all the incredible things that you are doing? Sure. I'm Diana Adams, and I am a lawyer and an activist for LGBTQ and non-nuclear families. And by non-nuclear families, I mean the majority of us who are in other kinds of partnerships beyond a heterosexual romantic dyad, which we've upheld as the primary kind of family form, but which is actually in the minority now. So I support these kinds of families, including polyamorous families and platonic partnerships and single parents through my law firm, Diane Adams Law Mediation, which I've had since 2007 in New York. And now with Chosen Family Law Center, where I support people pro bono who are low income, also based in New York. Oh, it's so, uh, what do you think is, like, where do you want to start this conversation? What do you want people to know about your work? I think it's really important that we have a shift in the ways that we think about family and the ideal family in the US particularly, because we've had such an emphasis on marriage through the same-sex marriage movement, which I've been part of. And it's important that same-sex couples be able to access the many rights and benefits of marriage, over a thousand different rights and benefits. But marriage is a legal financial institution. It's basically a three-way with the government and it comes (laughs) with these Christian roots. It's a Mm. sacrament. And it may or may not be the right kind of family form for all of us. Fewer of us are choosing it every year. And so I think even while we have a a prevalence of people who are choosing something a little bit different and choosing to create family in their own way, we still have to grapple with shame. And I think that with my legal change work, 
part of that is legitimizing these kinds of families and upholding the kinds of families who deserve to be uplifted to show and demonstrate other kinds of models. We need other kinds of beautiful models of the many different constellations of family structure, including yeah. polyamorous families, including the divorced family with a stepmom or a stepdad, including living single. 38% of American adults are single. And I think that each of these kinds of categories of family may feel really marginalized, may feel like they have to come out to people about it, may feel um, like there's some stigma, may feel like, oh, things didn't yeah. work out for me the right way because I got divorced or because right. um, we're swingers or because I stayed single um, or you know I didn't find Mr. Right, so I'm doing platonic co-parenting with my best friend instead, who's a gay guy. And actually, I think we need to get rid of that kind of narrative. So often parents ask me, what do I do about the fact that, you know, my kid's family is going to look different than everybody else's? And then I have to remind mm. them that it's actually a dwindling minority of families that are in that heterosexual, um, monogamous, white picket fence, yeah. own their own home, nuclear family that don't live with extended family and don't live with a, um, you know, a relative that needs caretaking or don't live with extended family or don't live with another person in the household or don't have the kids switching households sometimes. And so that actually you're more likely to have your kid fit in with these other kinds of many beautiful families. And that rather than each of these groups of people think of themselves as a minority, that we have the power to be in alliance with each other and be in solidarity with one another. I think that all polyamorous people need to support the rights of single people and single people need to support the rights of LGBTQ people who need to support the rights of platonic co-parents mm -hmm. who need to support polyamorous people because we are stronger together. And that's one of the essences of my TED talk, which came out last year. Will you share a little bit about that? Sure. So in my TED talk, which is called why U.S. law needs to expand beyond the nuclear family. Which, I listen to it, friends, if you have not yet. It's so good. Thank you so much. I was really honored to be one of the LGBTQ main stage speakers of last year um, to present these ideas. And I've been speaking about them for many years and it feels like there's finally a cultural moment where people are ready to listen and say, wow, that's a good idea. And I'm like, yeah, I've been shouting this in LGBTQ rec room basements um, <laughs> for years. Um, but you're right. Thank you. And so it's yeah, yeah. less than that of staying true to something that you really believe in and continuing to talk about it and work on it and yeah. with the credibility around it until people are ready to listen. Yeah. If, if you're having the experience of screaming onto a freeway, keep screaming. Like someone will listen. Yep. Someone will listen. And um, I think that I, I continued to work to develop these kinds of ideas. And now I feel like I'm at a place in which culture is ready to listen. And we've had these demographic shifts toward other kinds of families. And Pew Research has done great research to track that. Um, and other people have been tracking the prevalence of polyamorous families. Um, one in five people have tried an ethically non-monogamous relationship in the U.S., which is as many people as own cats. I mean, it's really a wow. of people. And they don't necessarily feel the freedom to be out right now. Um, and that's why we don't know about it. But I think that you know, we were in a moment in which there's the possibility for change. And one of the things I speak about in my TED talk is the capacity to band together for legal change and to support one another, but also that we can create chosen family and intentional family 
in our own lives. And we don't need to just focus on one romantic partner, whether you're polyamorous, whether you're monogamous, whether you're single, I think we all have the capacity to be conscious about building family bonds with people, building bonds of mutual care and mutual aid in our communities. I think we really learned with the pandemic how much we all need that and how much just being in a romantic relationship with someone or being in a household with someone is not the limit on what family is and that we all deserve to have that kind of mutual support. How did you get into this? What, What lights your fire every day? I got into this because I am personally a polyamorous person and I'm a queer person who grew up in a Christian working class family. And the ideal life for me might've been being a pastor's wife. That is not what happened, obviously. <laughs> and um, I'm one of those many people who who came to New York City and found a queer community and found a lot of support from queer chosen family and through my polyamorous community and through my Burning Man community and found a community with other like-minded people and built bonds that were deeper than friendship with them, such that I speak about this in my TED talk that they supported me when I had cervical cancer. And I don't think I'd be alive today if I didn't have that community of friends um, who you know are chosen family to me and who take care of me and I take care of them. And I think yeah. that those kinds of bonds are valuable. And I, I think then too, as I was, building my legal career, I was in these communities and doing other kinds of family law advocacy work and would get questions. Who's a referral lawyer you could send me to if we're a polyamorous triad and we want to figure out how to share our finances? Or I am polyamorous or kinky and that's being used against me in a child custody case. Who's the lawyer for that? Or same-sex couples that want to figure out the complicated web at the time of getting a civil union in Vermont and coming Mm -hmm. back, getting recognized in New York or same-sex parenting and sperm donors. And I looked around for who to send these people to, and there were extremely few resources. There were just a few for same-sex couples and then none for polyamorous people and none for kinky people. And so I felt like this is actually my community. These kinds of families are valid and valuable and deserve support. And I founded my law firm in 2007 to support these kinds of families and have created that as a boutique law firm that's expanded. And now we serve clients throughout New York state and do mediation nationwide, as well as consult on cases nationwide in which people are being discriminated against because they're polyamorous or kinky or because of their sexuality. And so I feel really, um, I feel really impassioned that this is really my calling to bring a message of family inclusivity into the world and to be in support of these kinds of families that have given me so much love and support in my own personal life. Oh, it's so powerful. I, I, and for those of you who have been following me for a little while, um, Diana is the incredible human who did our uh, divorces um, and is now doing our cohabitation agreement. Um, Diana, I'm wondering if you can share when we were working on some cohab stuff, I can't remember what session we were in with you, but you shared a story about a same-sex couple and hospital visitation. And it reminded me when you said um, about the legal rights of people and not having the same rights as when you get married. And I'm wondering if you can speak to some of these differences, because I get the question often, like, well, what's the difference of you not being married versus 
having a legal marriage. And I obviously can come at it from an emotional perspective. I can come at it from like the few married benefit laws that I know of, but this is your bread and butter. Um, so whether it's that story about the same-sex hospital visitation or something else, can you speak to some of these differences? Absolutely. I think that it's important for people to realize that they have a range of legal structures. And I'm really passionate about domestic partnership as one of those possible legal structures, as well as marriage. And for people to understand that getting legally married, as I said, comes with a thousand rights and benefits, some of which you may not want, which include being each other's social safety net and, and financial safety net in the eyes of the government which may not be the way that you want to entangle your lives. And in particular, this is a way that we have privatized the dependency of women and children in this country rather than have a social welfare state, um, as you know, we do in many countries in Europe and in much of the rest of the developed world. And so by not having the social welfare state, that means that the dependency of parents, particularly moms who are home with young children, often falls on their partner. And that those who are single, miss out on that kind of support and don't get that kind of um, financial support from the government and may need to look to a romantic partner instead. And I think that's really troubling as a feminist and as somebody who advocates for bodily autonomy that we shouldn't need to seek out a romantic or sexual relationship to find that kind of stability. And that has been something that's been pushed in our welfare policy, encouraging low-income moms to get married which I think is the government pimping um, low-income women in this country. And I'm all about supporting sex work and I am not up for pimping, particularly when it comes from the government. Right. So I think, you know, we need to be cognizant that that's a meaning of marriage that for, you know, if one of you were to get into quite a bit of debt, even if the other one didn't know about it, you split that debt. Um, if one of you goes out and makes a lot of money, you split that money. And in the eyes of the government, either that debt or that success is marital property that you could potentially be dividing with each other. And that is something that can be a really powerful way to be in mutual support if that's what works for you. And I'm actually in a partnership like that. You know, one of us has a big year, one of us doesn't have a big year and we support each other and both of us get to contribute to our retirement accounts. That works for mm -hmm. you if that's what you know you're signing up for. But for many romantic relationships, that may not be what you want to sign up for. One of the other big benefits of marriage is immigration benefits. Um, and so as mm -hmm. I did an amicable divorce in your situation so that we could reconfigure your family, yeah. I've done a number of amicable divorces in situations like a happily married couple um, who have a consensual non-monogamous relationship start to develop a deep connection with someone they're dating, either one or both of them is dating, and then they, you know, are contemplating the fact that this person doesn't have a green card status in this country and is a queer person and might get sent back somewhere where it's not safe to be queer, which is most of the world, yeah. most of our globe, unfortunately. And then figuring out different options. And if an employment option doesn't work, then I have multiple times over done an amicable divorce so that one of them can remarry their boyfriend or girlfriend so that they can mm. then get an adjustment of status green card based on marriage. So that's one of the other really powerful benefits of marriage. However, it's really that, wild. Yeah, it's really wild how much you can do with that and how much we privilege that kind of specific romantic relationship. And something I'm yeah. interested in is expanding 
the kinds of deep family relationships that we think of as a close family person beyond marriage when less than half of American adults are married, it doesn't seem fair that the other half of us wouldn't be able to, you know, keep your sister in the country, wouldn't be able to, um, you know, keep your best friend, keep your mother in the country for, with immigration or share your health insurance with your mother or your sister. Right. Um, why is it that just the specific kind of romantic relationship in which you share money is the, the relationship that we privilege over others? So I'm interested in helping people take a step back and look at this big picture and realize we don't have to keep doing what we've done before just because it's the way we've always done it. It may not be what is most ethical for all of us. And our vision of the perfect 1950s world was really only perfect for you know, land-owning white men who are heterosexual. And for everybody else, it was a hellscape. And we do not need to go back to it. It was a peak time for racism. It was a peak time for domestic violence and women feeling trapped in romantic relationships they didn't want to be in. And sometimes our marriage laws still keep women really trapped. So I'm interested in, in expansive view of family. And one of the ways I'm excited to bring forward other kinds of family structure is through domestic partnership. And domestic partnership was a family structure that was started in the same-sex partnership movement before we had marriage. And so progressive cities like New York City and like Berkeley and like many other places would pass a domestic partnership law saying, you know, two people can come in and become domestic partners. And while you don't have all of those financial entanglements of marriage, you do as a domestic partner have the benefit of being each other's special legal person. You know, we are legally officially family in some yeah. way. And you can then with that generally share health insurance. And you can also, because you're in that special family status, you can usually have hospital visitation access if you explain that status. And as we learned in the coronavirus pandemic, you can also cross a border in a pandemic to be together if you're domestic partners. So it does have some special meaning and it, and it could actually be better for some people to not have their entire financial lives entangled um, without intending to. The Honeypot is more than the products in your bathroom cabinet. It's embracing that time of the month. It's staying balanced through the ups and downs, good sex and bad sex. It's exploring, it's learning, it's plant-derived. Powered by herbs and science, the first complete personal care system to get you what you need when you need it. Check out The Honeypot at Target, Walmart, Walgreens, and on thehoneypot.co. You can enter code RACHEL20, that's R-A-C-H-E-L-2-0, for 20% off your first Honeypot order on thehoneypot.co. With those domestic partnership laws, when they were passed, sometimes they were written in a bit in different ways, different places. And then other people beyond romantic couples would sign up. So if it didn't have any kind mm. of language saying, you know, uh, no people who are related who couldn't get married, which it's includes sometimes meaning for it's incest. If it didn't have that specific language in a particular city, then you'd see sisters saying, well, I have a really great job and my sister has a disability issue or just was diagnosed with cancer. I want her on my great corporate health insurance. And so we would see that people beyond romantic couples are signing up for this, including platonic partners, including elderly widows like the Golden Girls. If they wanted to you know, be each other's hospital visitation and health insurance person, they might sign up for this. And so I That's think awesome. that allows creativity. 
Yeah. Um, and I think it's important that when we have achieved same-sex marriage and, you know, hopefully we hang on to it, that's unclear at this point. I hope that we can continue to keep domestic partnership as a really powerful vehicle for family structure, particularly because it doesn't have that social welfare state entanglement and because it gets government out of the business of deciding which of our relationships are worthy and are valid of getting health insurance and getting benefits. Because for the most part, any two people could say, this is my special legal someone with whom I want to share health insurance and visit each other in the hospital. And it does not matter if it is my uncle, if it is my sister, if it is my best friend, if it's my lover, if we have an open relationship, if we have a closed relationship, it's not a Christian sacrament. And it's yeah. much more like, you know, if five people want to band together as a corporation and buy properties and pay and pay taxes together and buy a health insurance plan, no one's asking if they're business partners or lovers or yep. family. It doesn't matter. It, it, if you're choosing to invest in each other and support one another, we should allow that and support that. And I'm excited that right now we have passed the first multi-partner domestic partnership laws in the U.S. in three cities in Massachusetts and probably in the next month expanding to the West Coast. Um, oh my God. That would allow any, you know, two, three, four, five people to go get domestic partnerships together and including in a V format so that it could be, you know, I'm domestic partnered with my girlfriend and separately domestic partnered with my boyfriend who are not that way with each other, just like real relationships work. You know, I may be very close with my sister. My husband is not as close with my sister and they don't need to be each other's special legal someone. Right. So right. it actually allows for the reality of how people's lives work and it welcomes platonic partnerships. We're doing this in collaboration with the ACE community of asexual and aromantic people who also often are very interested in platonic partnerships. So I think that there's a lot of creativity and a lot of possibility in this. And I'm, I'm really excited about this as a way of expanding our vision of inclusive family for the future. It's so, I, I really like Diana, I truly become speechless when I hear you talk. And this is like, whether we're in this setting or like, we're literally working with you. It, it's, I know that I am so passionate about the work that I do and the people that I serve. And I've always worked with LGBTQ, non-monogamous kid communities. And I have really never seen someone meet the passion that I have inside of me and, and see it. And just the way that you talk about it, the, the way that you describe things, it's so easy to understand and it doesn't make it scary. Like I hear you talk about it and the law freaks me out. I, I like, I hear all the loopholes. I like see all these terrible people, you know, who are trying to enforce the law. And I just, I want to stay away from it and you make it so accessible and like pull people in. I'll speak for myself, pull me in to want to learn more and to have it not be this scary thing. And it's, it's so beautiful. And I'm so grateful for you in this world. Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate that. And I'm so happy for you that like me, you get to serve a community with whom you feel deep, passionate connection. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's such a privilege in this world yeah. to be able to do work that you find fulfilling. And that's Agreed. another reason that I do this. It's selfish because I want to be happy in my day-to-day -day work. Right. And, I'm, <laughs> I'm yeah. about and honestly, yeah. I had several years of trying different kinds of lawyer jobs 
and the alarm clock would go off and I'd be like, oh, fuck, you know, another day of this. Um, being around people that I'm excited to be around, doing work that I'm just like, meh, it's a paycheck, you know? Um, and so many of us have that work in the world and don't have a choice. And for those of us who do have the privilege of having a choice about the kind of work yeah. that we build for ourselves, I just encourage people to be bold and to be entrepreneurial and to be creative about what the possibilities are. I think for, in particular, lawyers are, um, are really trained to be fear-based and cautious mm -hmm. and risk averse in their own lives. And the majority of law students enter law school saying, I want to work on international human rights or like maybe start mm -hmm. my own nonprofit or something like that. And then the majority of them leave as corporate lawyers and a community of people that have some of the highest rates of depression, alcoholism, um, and unhappiness. And so it's like, you could do anything, but really only one of these two things. Right. And, <laughs> and that I, I think we're really force fed. And I think um, I also try to speak out about people just being able to take the time for themselves, for play, for self exploration about finding your passions and then finding a way to incorporate that into your work. And so I'm very grateful that I have the opportunity to do that. And I speak to law students about that regularly because I think it's a message that people need to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so important. It's the same thing with therapists. So risk adverse, like it, right. it it's, I remember leaving, um, my law and ethics class in my master's program. And I looked at my friend and I was like, okay, so if I sneeze in the wrong direction, I'm going to get sued. Like that's, that's my takeaway from today's class is literally don't sneeze to the left. If you've been told once sneeze to the right, because then you're just fucked. And I remember feeling so, um, oppressed, like in that moment, just as a, as a person who wanted to do so much, hearing all of these limitations, I was like, what is this box we have to sit in? Like, I don't, it's terrible. Yeah, I agree. And I'm happy for you that you've been able to choose a path uh, about which you're so passionate too. Oh, well, yeah, right back at you. So to to kind of wrap up and put everything in a bow for, for anyone listening, I would love for you to just give a final message to two different groups that are probably listening, which is one, someone who's a part of either the LGBTQ, polyamorous, kink community, and the other is to the person who's not but is an ally and has friends or family that are in one of those communities. And perhaps the message is the same, but what do you want to say to, to these two groups listening? Well, I want to make sure that I answer the title question about what, for example, polyamorous and LGBTQ people should know about family law. Yes. Um, and I will say first, in terms of LGBTQ people, I think that it's important to know that there are really state specific laws about what it means to be a same-sex parent and in particular what it means to be a non-biological parent because in any same-sex couple um you're going to have somebody that's the bio mom and the non-bio mom often unless they're adopting and so i think it's important to recognize that state laws on that vary state laws on what makes a valid sperm donor agreement vary um, whether or not surrogacy is allowed which is common with mm male same-sex couples, whether surrogacy is allowed is also varying state by state. And so you need a state-specific lawyer and you need somebody who is experienced in this area because there are too many lawyers, unfortunately, who will take your money and who have the hubris to think that they 
um, can work in this field when they've done nothing about it. And it's a rapidly changing complex area of law. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I should not be giving you personal injury advice because that's not my field. And somebody that doesn't do LGBTQ family law and isn't keeping up on the monthly and annual changes um, shouldn't be doing it either. So look for somebody with experience. There's a wonderful network of LGBTQ lawyers who do family law through the National LGBTQ Bar Association. There's actually an interactive map where you can click on your state um, at lgbtqbar.org. And so you can find a lawyer in your state and get that kind of support. And I think it's really important um, in those kinds of queer parenting situations to keep in mind that it's important that we make a plan, whether you're polyamorous, whether you're LGBTQ, whether you're creating family in a different way, that particularly with parenting, I think if you're really clear on, you know, is this my sperm donor or is he a dad figure? Mm. If we are a non-monogamous couple and our partner lives with us while we have a child, are they a parental figure? Are they not a parental figure? And for yourselves and your clarity to prevent disputes and for the sake of the child's clarity, just being really on the same page. And while I create lots of creative family agreements, um, like the cohabitation agreement that I've been working on with your family and Mm -hmm. co-parenting agreements, those facilitated conversations are at least as important as the piece of paper that you end up with. And so being mindful to have the open communication that we all need to create the families that we want and design our own relationships. You don't design your own relationships as we go off road as queer people or polyamorous people by downloading something from the internet and signing it without really reading and understanding it. And that won't serve you. And so I encourage people to get the support of making family agreements, making intentional agreements about how you share finances or um, about co-parenting and not just putting it down on paper in a legal agreement, but having it facilitated by somebody with experience. And part of the work of Chosen Family Law Center is to provide that work for free if you live in New York State and as we expand, hopefully in other states soon too. So, you know, get it in writing and also have the facilitated conversations if you're sharing money or co-parenting. And then I think for polyamorous people, making sure they're aware that at this point, there's no residency requirement to go to Massachusetts at this point and get your multi-partner domestic partnership. So there are situations in which it might be that somebody living in California um, has a romantic partner with whom they want to provide health insurance. Um, and you can actually enter into these institutions while you're married to one person and can be domestic partner to a different person, which is really radical and very new. Wait, that's so cool. It's very cool and very new. And so you can do that. And so I've had a situation in which it's, okay, I'm in California, I'm married to somebody who doesn't need my health insurance and my serious partner just got a major medical diagnosis and I want my my spouse doesn't need my health insurance, this person does, come to Cambridge or Somerville in Massachusetts, get multi-partner domestic partnership, be able to go back to their HR and say, this person's my domestic partner and I wanna switch health insurances to my to this person and have that work successfully. That's something that you can do right now. And we hope that that is something that will expand to other places. So you can keep track of what we're doing by following Chosen Family Law Center and the project that's working on this specifically, it's a project of Chosen Family Law Center and Harvard LGBTQ Advocacy Clinic is Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition. You can also find us on all social media and at polyamorylegal.org. And I would just encourage polyamorous people to follow along because we are working to expand your rights and expand your protections. Next up is going to be non-discrimination protections 
for polyamorous people, which will be the first in the country. And we hope that that will pass potentially even within the next month, potentially by the time this airs. So follow along and be involved in this movement to expand our rights. And so that's my key takeaways for LGBTQ and polyamorous people in terms of family law. And then in terms of people who are in neither of those categories, I would just encourage us all to keep track of these movements, be in support, because these are at essence, a movement for family freedom and a movement for bodily autonomy. And I think that if you want to have your own sexual freedom, if you wanna be be able to be involved in non-monogamous relationships, you need to be supporting transgender people and their bodily autonomy. Yeah. And you know we all need to be supporting reproductive freedom um, and abortion rights, and recognize that all of these issues are interconnected. And that yeah, you know, if you know when they start coming for people in terms of bodily autonomy, they may start coming for you too. And all of us have a bodily autonomy need. If you are a straight heterosexual white guy, I'm sure you also have a bodily autonomy need. And there's going to be a point at which you don't want somebody. Um, telling you what prescriptions you're allowed to have or telling you what you're allowed to wear in public, right? All of us have a priority in preserving our bodily autonomy as a basic fundamental right. And I would encourage all of us to stay involved and stay posted on those movements and support how we can. And I would also say that if you're doing something that is other than that heterosexual monogamous uh, marriage, that you have an alliance with polyamorous people, with LGBTQ people, with single people, that we all have a lot more in common in terms of expanding the ways that we vision family, the ways that we vision our adult lives. And what's more essential than that, the freedom to think about what does my daily life look like as an adult? And are there options for me if I don't have that white picket fence, nuclear family image that we were all force fed um, through television and culture and media and law and religion and be able to have a more expansive vision that supports all of us. And I work with many couples that are in that, you know, heterosexual monogamous marriage who still think we want to do things our own way. And we don't have to be just on a hamster wheel about what life looks like. So maybe we don't want to have children. Maybe we don't want to sleep in the same bed forever. Maybe we want to have two households and sometimes give each other some space. Um, We might want to experience the polyamorous virtue of compersion, which is the opposite of jealousy about things like that are not related to other romantic or sexual relationships, but instead, you know, you've got your dream opportunity, but it means you go live in a, another country for half the year and I'm happy for you rather than um, sad for myself that I'll be missing you, right? So I think we yeah. all can take um, lessons about the ways that we can be good allies to each other. Ugh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Friends, I'm going to put Diana's contact information and social media information in the show notes. Diana, I um, thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for making sure that I literally didn't get the title of the episode in our conversation. And just again, thank you for all of the work that you're you're doing in the world. Is there anything else that you want to, to leave everyone with today? Thank you so much, uh, Rachel. Yes, please follow along in the conversation. You can follow Chosen Family Law Center and Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition on all social medias and get on our mailing list to hear what's going on at a deeper level. And Chosen Family Law Center is actually hiring right now a development director. Oh, amazing. Open. So come work with us on a wonderful queer team at which you can be your whole self. Um, and follow along with me on Twitter at Diana Adams S-E-S-Q and on all social medias. That's Diana Adams E-S-Q as an Esquire. 
perfect. Everything will be linked. And yes, follow, 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 follow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rachel. That's all for today, you sexy folks. What questions came to mind as you were listening? Continue the conversation with me over on Instagram at the right underscore Rachel. And don't forget, please leave a rating and a review so that we can continue erasing shame and stigma together.